This morning as we continue our two-part study of God's sovereign role in salvation, we want to pick up where we left off last Sunday by continuing to look at the doctrine of unconditional election. Now, as you know, the doctrine of election, as I've told you a number of times, it's part of a larger system of theology commonly known as Calvinism, named after the 16th century French reformer John Calvin, though he ministered in Geneva, Switzerland. He was of French origin, and he was the leading proponent and defender of these truths in his day, and so we call it Calvinism. As I've already told you in a number of previous messages, Calvinism consists of five points of theology, which is represented by the acrostic tulip, with the first point standing for the letter T, signifying total depravity. Now, as we've already discovered, total depravity, which is really the foundational truth upon which the rest of Calvinism and these doctrines of grace stand, it means that at the fall of man, when Adam chose to disobey God and become a sinner, all of his descendants were destined to become sinners too, both by their nature and by their choice, with the result being that we have been completely, totally polluted by sin so that every area of our being, without exception, has been affected. Our minds, our wills, our affections, our emotions, everything about us is contaminated and polluted by sin. There's absolutely nothing about us that has not been contaminated by sin. Even though we don't necessarily behave as badly as we're capable of behaving. Total depravity. But not only are we sinners in the totality of our being, the Bible also says that we're born into this world spiritually dead. We are enslaved to sin. Which means, folks, that we have absolutely no interest in doing anything to change or remedy our sinful condition. All we want to do is sin by leading a self-focused, self-absorbed, self-indulgent life. We don't seek after God. We're not interested in obeying Him. We have no desire to repent of our sin and turn to Christ to deliver us from our desperate situation. In fact, we aren't even morally capable of making any positive move towards God. We're like dead corpses so that we are completely unresponsive to anything when it comes to God. And so where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us hopelessly lost and on our way to hell to be punished for our sins forever. Now folks, that is the doctrine of total depravity. And it is a devastating doctrine because it paints a terribly dreadful and hopeless picture and outlook for man. He's headed heading towards a Christless eternity without any ability or even interest in turning around and remedying his situation. And God, God would be absolutely just and righteous if he did nothing to help man in his hopeless estate, but let every single one of us continue running, as that song we just sang says, our hell-bound race until we died and ran straight into hell. But instead... Due to his remarkable, astounding, amazing mercy and heart of compassion, the Bible tells us that God has done something to rescue some of Adam's fallen race from hell. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that before the foundation 
of the world, meaning sometime, at some point in eternity past, God selected some from amongst Adam's fallen race who he chose to bestow his grace upon so that at a certain point in our lives, he would change our sinful hearts, giving us both the desire and the ability to turn from our sin and trust Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, this teaching that God selects some, that is known as unconditional election. And it's the second point of Calvinism. It is the you in tulip and was the subject of our study last week, and it is the subject of our study this week. Now, this is an incredible truth to grasp, especially if you have never heard about this doctrine before. However, it's also a hard truth to handle because along with the wonderful knowledge that unconditional election means that God chooses some to be saved comes the realization that not all are elect and therefore they will perish. Now last Sunday I tried to address this particular struggle that people have with election by pointing out that God has every right to be merciful to some and not to others. That's his prerogative. He is under no moral obligation to save any of us. Listen, if God allowed all of us to die in our sins without electing and rescuing anyone, he would still be perfectly righteous and just. He owes us nothing. But in his infinite mercy, and that's exactly what it is, his infinite mercy, That is what the doctrine of unconditional election is all about, God's mercy. He has determined, though, to save some, an elect remnant. And the reason he has chosen to bestow mercy on some, as we discovered last week, is because God the Father loves God the Son. And he wants others to love the Son as well. And so he has elected a small segment of Adam's rebellious race to salvation so that they would have their eyes opened and would recognize the greatness and the splendor and the majesty and the grandeur of the Son of God as they gaze upon his beauty and his majestic glory, adoring him, loving him, worshiping him for all of eternity. That's why Jesus spoke of those who would come to him as the Father's love gifts to him. He said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And because we are personal love gifts from the Father, we are not only guaranteed to come to Christ for salvation, we are guaranteed to be saved and kept being saved. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29 My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And as we learned last week, the reason the Father has done this for us, elected us, saved us, and keeps us saved, is so that there will be some some who will see the majesty of Jesus Christ and magnify him forever. John 17, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. Here's the way one Bible teacher I read explained this remarkable truth. He wrote, salvation then does not come to sinners because they are inherently desirable, but because the Son is inherently worthy of the Father's 
gift. After all, the purpose of redemption is that the Son might be eternally exalted by the redeemed. It's not for the honor of the sinner, but the honor of the Son. And in response to the Father's love, the Son eagerly accepts those who are drawn holy because they are a gift from the Father whom He loves. It is His perfect gratitude that opens His arms to embrace the lost. Now, this really puts election in a totally new light, doesn't it? Instead of looking at salvation solely from a self-focused perspective, as if it's primarily for our sake, the doctrine of unconditional election reveals that salvation is primarily for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, salvation is more about the Father's love for the Son and His desire to honor Him than about His love for us, although it is certainly true that He loves us. Now, election needs to be understood this way. Why? Because this is the way that Scripture presents it, as a doctrine of pure mercy bestowed by the Father upon undeserving sinners so that there would be some humans capable of adoring and loving His Son. Now, as I told you last week, I'm convinced that some believers, some Christians, struggle with unconditional election because it has never been properly explained to them by their pastors. In fact, some have never even heard their pastors preach on election because it's such a controversial subject and they don't want to stir up trouble in their congregations. In fact, I knew a pastor who felt exactly this way. He believed in election, but he admitted. He admitted that he would never preach this doctrine to his people because it's so controversial. He said, I'll never do that. To pastors who would do such a thing as withhold the doctrine of election from their people, Charles Spurgeon had these strong words. He said, some of you have never preached on election since you were ordained. These things you say are offensive. And so you would rather offend God than offend man. But you reply, these things will not be practical. I do think that the climax of all man's blasphemy is centered in that utterance. Tell me that God put a thing in the Bible that I am not to preach. You are finding fault with my God, but you say it will be dangerous. What? God's truth dangerous? I should not like to stand in your shoes when you have to face your maker on the day of judgment after such an utterance as that. So if there are any pastors here who fit this, take heed to Spurgeon's words. But listen, whenever election is presented biblically, even when it's presented Biblically, there are still some who object to it and have their problems with it because it raises all kinds of questions in their minds. And I understand that. And so as I told you last week, our approach in this brief study, and it's only a two-part study, on the subject of unconditional election is to ask four questions that are designed to give us not only a better understanding of this doctrine, but also to help address the problems that some people have with the doctrine of election. So having covered the first two questions last Sunday, what is the meaning of the term unconditional election and does the Bible actually teach unconditional election? We're now ready to move on to the final two questions with the third one being this. How do we answer some of the major objections to unconditional election? Now, those Christians who reject this doctrine, they've raised a number of, of objections 
concerning this teaching over the years. And this morning, I want to address three of the more significant of these objections, with the first one being this. The number one problem that people have with the doctrine of election is that they believe that this doctrine just isn't fair. They say election isn't fair. It's not fair of God to elect some and, and not others. Now, I realize we've already dealt with this, this objection last Sunday to some degree by demonstrating that election is purely, purely a doctrine of mercy bestowed upon some undeserving sinners. It's not a doctrine that stresses fairness or justice. It's not a doctrine. Remember, election condemns no one because we're already totally condemned. We are totally depraved, condemned sinners. Election only speaks of God's mercy. So if you're looking for a doctrine, for a teaching in the Bible stressing God's justice, it's not here. Don't look for it in the doctrine of election because you won't find it there. If you want justice for everyone, then recognize that every one of us should be rightfully in hell today because that would be just of God. We deserve that, but he hasn't done that. Instead, out of his heart of compassion, he has determined to be merciful to some by electing them to salvation. Today, though, I want to I take this objection just a step further because at the root, at the very root of this objection to election is an accusation against God himself. That's really what it is. The accusation that it's, it's not right of him to choose one person and not another. Isn't that really what bothers many about election? Why does God elect one man, one woman to be saved while rejecting another? That is to say, why does God elect someone and pass over another? So, how do we answer an objection like this? Well, frankly, we don't have to answer it because the Apostle Paul has already dealt with this accusation. So I'd like you to, to open your Bibles to look at, with me at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. In the opening verses of Romans 9, Paul is determined to establish the truth that God has not been unrighteous in his dealings with the nation of Israel. Why? Because he has made certain promises of salvation to Israel and he will keep those promises. He's made promises of salvation. He'll keep them to the Jewish people. Now the reason that Paul has to even deal with this subject concerning God's righteousness, his integrity towards Israel, is because the early church, especially at Rome, the church at Rome, was becoming increasingly filled with Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, while at the same time the majority of the Jewish people of that day were rejecting Christ their own Messiah. And so the Christians at Rome were wondering, and Paul understood this, what about God's promises in the Old Testament to save Israel? If so many Jewish people reject their own Messiah, then how is God going to keep his word to save Israel? And he has promised to do that. And if he doesn't keep his word to Israel, then how can we trust him to keep his word to us, the church? So Paul answers this concern over God's integrity, his righteousness to keep his word, by making a profoundly bold statement in verse 6 of Romans chapter 9. He said, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. 
Now what the apostle means by this is that God's word hasn't failed, nor will it fail, because all Israel will indeed be saved. But you need to understand that not all of the physical children of Abraham are considered by God to be Israel. So then the question becomes, well then who makes up the real Israel? Who's the true Israel that God has promised to save? And Paul's answer, note this, is this. Those individuals whom God has sovereignly chosen from amongst the physical descendants of Abraham, that's the real Israel. And so what the apostle does from this point on in Romans chapter 9 is he proceeds to show that from the very beginning, from the very start of Israel's history, God established the nation by choosing, by electing, sovereignly choosing some to bless and others not to bless. And so we read in verses 7 through 9, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as descendants, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now, all that these verses are saying is simply this, that God chose Isaac over Ishmael. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Though both were Abraham's sons, God sovereignly chose one, Isaac, the son of Sarah, over Ishmael. Then in the next few verses, Paul reminds everyone that God also chose Jacob over Esau, verses 10 through 11. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now understand that the primary point that Paul is making here is that throughout the history of Israel, God has defined the true Israel as an elect remnant of Jewish people who have been chosen, note this, solely on the basis of divine selection and not on the basis of physical ancestry. You see, to deny the doctrine of election, folks, would be to deny the history of Israel. But with keen insight into the human heart, Paul knew that there would still be some who would object to election on the basis that they thought it was just unjust of God to do such a thing. And so Paul wrote these words in verse 14. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Paul just dismisses this thought of injustice on God's part as being absurd, nonsense, unthinkable. How could a perfectly holy God be unjust and unrighteous? It's impossible. The psalmist declared in Psalm 92 verse 15, that the Lord is upright, having no unrighteousness in him. May it never be, Paul says. And Paul didn't leave it at that because he knew that some would still have a problem with the doctrine of election. So he proceeds to get to the real heart of election, the real heart of the issue, by declaring in verse 15 something that God said to Moses back at the time of the Exodus and in the book of Exodus, verse 15. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, why did God say this to Moses, and why is Paul mentioning this here? It happened so many years ago. Well, these words were said to Moses in context in the book of Exodus, shortly after the children of Israel had participated in that horrible, idolatrous worship of a golden calf. As a result of their sin, we read in Exodus 32, verse 28, that judgment fell upon 3,000 people, Jewish people in the nation of Israel, and they were killed. But following this severe display of his wrath, the Lord revealed to Moses that he, Moses, had found favor in his sight. And so Moses asked the Lord to prove it by showing him his glory. And it's in this context of show me your glory, as God is doing that, that he tells him this, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, while all of Israel deserved to die for this sin, Moses, I want you to know that I am a compassionate God who sovereignly bestows mercy on whoever I choose to bestow mercy upon. You see, what God is telling Moses is that though the whole nation deserved his judgment, I mean, Aaron was leading this, this idolatry. The whole nation deserved to be killed. He mercifully chose to spare all except 3,000 people. He showed mercy to some, but not to everybody. Now, folks, this is a very significant statement and one that needs to be understood because it answers the question asked by many. Why has God chosen one person and not another? And here is God's answer. Are you ready for it? You're ready for it. It is none of your business. That's God's answer. I will show mercy to whomever I choose to show mercy to. You don't have to know the basis for why I elect one person over another. All you need to know is that I have the right to bestow mercy on whomever I choose to favor. Now, some may not like this answer, this answer from God, but he has every right to answer this way. It's none of our business why he chooses to elect one person and not another. He, we rest in the fact that he has his reasons for doing this, and they're perfect reasons, because he is a perfect being. But he hasn't revealed those reasons to us, because as we saw last week from Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. However, having said this, Paul goes on to give at least some insight some insight as to why God hasn't chosen everyone to salvation. Notice verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Now quoting from the Old Testament book of Exodus again, Paul explains that God raised up Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, at the time of the Exodus in order to display his power, his divine power, so that, watch this, his name, God's name, might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, which is exactly what happened. In other words, God withheld his mercy from Pharaoh by not revealing himself to Pharaoh, not saving Pharaoh, so that all might know how powerful our God is in overcoming those who oppose him. 
You see, in divine election, God has the prerogative to show mercy to Moses and to bypass Pharaoh. Why? Because both election and non-election reveal something of his glorious attributes. Now, this is how Paul answers those who object to election on the basis that it just doesn't seem right for God to choose one and pass by the other. But it is right for God to do this because whatever the Lord does is right simply because he's the one who establishes what's right and what's wrong. Not us, but him. And here's what Dr. James Montgomery Boyce said about those people who hear Paul's defense of election and yet still have a problem with it. He writes, not everyone will be satisfied by this. It may not satisfy you. But if you do not find it satisfying, if you will ask, but why should it be necessary for God's name to be glorified? Here's the answer. It's necessary because it is right for God to be glorified. God is glorious. He shall be recognized as such. And because this is a universe run by God, not by us, What is right will be done in the end. God will be honored and all will bow before him. So here's how we answer the objection to election that states, but it's just not fair of God to choose one person and not another. We say the same thing that the Apostle Paul said. God has always governed his world this way. He established the nation of Israel on the basis of his sovereign election, and he has every right to decide who he will be merciful to and who he will not be merciful to, even though he hasn't seen fit to reveal to us how he makes those decisions. But we do know that in electing some, as well as refraining from electing others, it brings him glory, and we rest in that. God is good. God is wise. God will do what God will do. Now, the second objection one often hears from those who are opposed to the doctrine of unconditional election is that election contradicts a statement in the Bible that says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Maybe you've had people say that to you. So how do we address this objection? Well, we address it by understanding the actual meaning of these words And in doing so, we discover there is no contradiction between what's said here and the doctrine of election. In fact, this statement validates, it affirms, it strengthens the arguments of the doctrine of election. The verse that contains this phrase is actually found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, the context of this verse is that Peter is addressing the claims of those who mock, who scoff, who scorn at the Lord's return. They argue that Christ certainly isn't returning because everything in nature continues as it always has. And so he's not going to disrupt the natural order of things by coming again to earth. It all continues as it always has. So there's not going to be any change. So in addressing the question of why Jesus hasn't returned yet, when it has been so many years since he promised to come back, Peter explains that it's not because of slowness. It's not because of slackness. But rather... It's because of patience. It's the Lord's patience that keeps him from returning. You see, when Christ returns, 
he returns not to save people, but to execute judgment and wrath on unbelievers. Once Jesus breaks through the clouds and returns, there, there won't be another opportunity for anyone to be saved. It's over. So, Peter reveals that the reason Jesus has waited all of these years to return is because he is patiently waiting for people to repent and be saved before it's too late, since he does not desire for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So then the question we need to ask is this, is Peter, is the apostle Peter saying that God isn't willing that any human beings should perish so that no individuals will ever perish and go to hell. Is that what Peter is saying? Well, it can't be what Peter is saying because throughout this letter he has repeatedly stated that it is God's will that some people perish. We read, for example, in chapter 2 verse 1, but false prophets also arose amongst the people, meaning in Old Testament times, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So Peter says here that false teachers, those who reject Christ, will perish with swift destruction. Again, in chapter 3, verse 7, we read this, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of un." godly men. So in the very context of saying that God is not willing that any should perish, Peter says that there are some ungodly people who are going to perish. So it's very clear that some people have perished and some people are going to perish, and that is the will of God. Now the scripture also says that God does not delight in the perishing of anyone. He says that in Ezekiel chapter 18 where he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But nonetheless, some people will perish because God is holy, God is perfectly just, and his holiness and justice demand that he punish sin. However, this isn't what Peter is talking about. It's not what he's talking about when he says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I want you to look carefully at this verse. Take a closer look at this verse, and I want you to notice that what Peter is actually saying is that God directs his patience not towards everyone in general, but towards a specific group of people. He says, but is patient toward you. And the you that he's talking about are Christians, the people reading his letter, the Lord's people, the people he's writing to, believers, in other words, the reason that Jesus has not returned yet to judge sinners is because God is being patient towards those whom he has chosen to be saved, the elect, so that they, the elect, will all come to repentance and not perish. See, what this verse is actually affirming is that the elect will all be saved because God is patiently withholding his judgment, waiting for all those whom he has chosen in eternity past to finally repent and be saved. Listen, if Christ had returned just a few years ago, just a few years earlier, some of you would have been lost forever because you weren't saved. You weren't ready to face God. But Jesus didn't return then. 
Why? Because he's patient. He's patiently waiting until all of his elect have come to him for salvation. That is what this verse is teaching. It affirms election, not contradicts it. Now, the third main objection to the teaching of election that one often hears from those who reject this doctrine, it has to do with evangelism. I know we've touched on this before, but let's go further. The objection goes something like this. If I believed, like you Calvinists believe, that only the elect will ever be saved, then I would never evangelize. After all, if God is going to save the elect, then it really doesn't matter if I witness or not, because all the elect are going to be saved eventually anyway. So how do we respond to this objection? Well, it is true that all of the elect will eventually be saved. That's true. Peter just told us this. But does the truth of election, does it stifle our witnessing? It shouldn't. On the contrary, election should encourage us to witness. You see, God has not only ordained that all the elect will come to faith in Christ, but watch this. He has also ordained the way, the manner, the means by which he brings people to Christ, the elect to Christ. And that way, that means, is by the proclamation of the gospel by people like us. Paul states in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. That's a, that's a profound statement. The world by its philosophy will never come to know God. The world, people of the world will never figure out how to know God by their own ideology. But God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He means the world looks at it as foolish. It's not a foolish message, but the world looks at it as foolish. It's by the message preached, the gospel. And people believe. Listen, no one has ever believed in election more passionately than the Apostle Paul. There is no stronger argument or chapter in the Bible about election than what Paul penned in Romans chapter 9. And yet notice what Paul wrote concerning evangelism in the very next chapter of his letter to the Romans, chapter 10. Starting in verse 13, he said, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. See, every Christian, without exception, is called to be a witness for Christ simply because God commands us to evangelize. That's our responsibility before him. And election is never to be used as an excuse for disobedience. I don't know if you realize this, but in the English-speaking world, some of the greatest evangelists, missionaries, and pastor theologians were men who were passionate about winning souls to Christ, but also strong Calvinists who all believed in unconditional Election. I'm talking about men like Bible translators, John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. They all believed, they both believed strongly in election. Reformers like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, evangelists and missionaries like George Whitfield, William Carey, the father of modern missions, and George Mueller, 
theologians and pastors like Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, just to name a few. I could go on and on about that. All of these were men who were zealous in proclaiming the gospel to the lost, and they were all committed to the doctrine of unconditional election, and it did not quench their evangelistic zeal. In addition, I would also add that the doctrine of election ought to be the greatest encouragement for you to witness, simply because election is the greatest assurance that we have that some, the elect, will be saved. Listen, if election isn't true, there's really no point in witnessing to anyone. Why? Because if God doesn't change someone's heart and bring them to Christ, then you can't either. No matter how persuasive you try to be, you can't persuade anybody into the kingdom. So election is an encouragement to witness because the elect are out there. Some will come to faith. See, this takes the pressure off of us. It takes it off of us as witness to others. While you and I are responsible to witness We don't have to live under the burden that someone's conversion somehow depends on us doing a flawless job in witnessing. Listen, nobody does a flawless job in witnessing. And you don't need to live with the fear that in witnessing to someone, well, you might blow it because they'll ask you a question and you don't know the answer or you might give the wrong answer. We're to be as prepared as possible, but nobody's conversion depends upon us You can't keep someone from faith in Christ and you don't send anybody to hell. We witness. Listen, no one's conversion, as I said, depends upon us doing a super duper job of witnessing. It depends upon God opening their hearts to the gospel. So be faithful to share the gospel with confidence that those whom God has chosen for salvation, they will be saved. Stop living under the burdensome weight that your witness has to be perfect or else this person will be condemned and go to hell. It's not true. So, folks, these are the three main objections that people seem to have concerning elections. We've seen today they can be answered biblically. But in the time remaining now, I want us to briefly consider the final question of this broad subject of unconditional election, which is this. What are some of the practical implications of unconditional Election. Now, this is, frankly, it's a very important question. I say that because there are many who think that election is an absolutely irrelevant doctrine that only theologians and Bible schools students love to discuss and sit around and debate at night long after they should be in bed. But it's just too theoretical for the average Christian because it really doesn't impact anyone's life. Well, that's not true. That's not true. What you believe about election profoundly influences you. And let me tell you how it influences you. First of all, the doctrine of unconditional election is perhaps the most humbling teaching in all the Word of God. I certainly don't know any teaching that humbles us more than this. Although I get it, I've known some of these people who are Calvinists who can come across with great arrogance and theological smugness and conceit as if their understanding of these doctrines makes them superior to others. I've met people like that. You probably have too. They're wrong. Just the opposite is true. And understanding of election leaves no room for arrogance, no room for boasting, no room for conceit because it strips away all pride from us. 
See, there's no boasting about ourselves when we realize that the only reason, and I mean the only reason we're saved is because God chose us and transformed us. Otherwise, we would still be lost in our sins. Listen to what the scripture says. I know you're familiar with Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, but I'm going to read it slowly, deliberately, so that it sinks in and grabs your heart. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all of us, we too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not as a result of works, so that no one may boast." For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. From beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. So how can people who were once dead in their sins and trespasses, how can we boast? What is there to boast about? When it's only by God's mercy, by God's grace that we're saved. There can be no boasting in the lives of those who have really grasped the meaning of divine election. There is nothing, as I said, nothing like this doctrine to humble us and deal with our pride. Secondly, in terms of how this doctrine affects us, there's nothing like the doctrine of unconditional election to deepen, deepen our worship, our love, our adoration for Christ Notice what Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Everything about election directs us to praise God for the glory of his grace in saving someone who was once dead, enslaved, and a hopeless lost sinner. Finally, it is the doctrine of election that really helps us to see just how much God loves us, how much he loves his people. Now, I understand that God primarily has revealed his love for us at the cross of Christ. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. However, it is the doctrine of unconditional election that helps us to see God's personal, his intimate love for us in a way that we may never have appreciated it before. Once again, we turn to our good friend, Charles Spurgeon, to tell us how election declares God's love for us. 
What Spurgeon has to say are some of the most magnificent words you will ever hear. Charles Spurgeon was a master of the English language. Listen to what he wrote. He said, in the very beginning, when this great universe lay in the mind of God, like unborn forests in the acorn cup, Long ere the echoes awoke the solitudes, before the mountains were brought forth, and long ere the light flashed through the sky, God loved his chosen creatures. Before there was any created being, when the heavens were not fanned by an angel's wing, when space itself had not an existence, when there was nothing save God alone, even then in that loneliness of deity, And in that deep quiet and profundity, his bowels moved with love for his chosen. Their names were written on his heart, and then were they dear to his soul. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are one of the elect that God has chosen to set his affection upon long before the world began. Your name is written on his heart. You're dear to his soul. So what do you do? Well, you thank him. You praise him. You adore him. You love him. You live for him. If you're not a believer in Christ, then I urge you to become one. As I've said before, never hide behind the doctrine of election as an excuse to not come to Christ. If you don't come to Christ, it isn't because of election. It's because you've chosen not to come. You've chosen to continue being a stiff-necked sinner. That's the bottom line. But if you have any interest, any inkling, any desire to come, it's because God has, has moved in your heart and he's made you willing to come. So what do you do? You come to him. You come running to him. You call upon Christ to save you. Jesus Christ died for sinners. That's your only hope. Nothing else. Come to him. Repent of your sin. Trust Christ. If you want to speak to one of our pastors about this, some of us will be up here at the front of the auditorium and we'll be happy to talk to you about this. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for... This marvelous doctrine, it does humble us, Lord. We don't deserve your mercy. There's nothing to boast about. We didn't figure out salvation. We're not smart enough to understand this and come to you on our own. Not only do we lack the intelligence, we we lack the desire. But you have chosen us and you have transformed us. You regenerated us. You gave us the faith to believe you to come to you and you keep us saved. Lord, we thank you. We pray for anybody here who has never trusted Christ, anybody who's watching, listening in the auditorium. We pray that you'll draw them to yourself. We pray that they'll come, that you'll move upon them to be saved, that they won't hide behind the doctrine of election, but recognize that they're lost without you and that you're their only hope. And Lord, once again, I pray for those of us who do know you. Deepen our love for you as a result of our understanding of election. Deepen our love, our worship, our adoration that we would live not for ourselves, but for you, for your glory. We thank you for choosing us. Don't know why you've chosen us, but thank you for that. Only to give you glory. May we do exactly that. We pray all of this in Christ's most glorious name. Amen.